Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and my wife is busy running the pharmacy right now. Um, she will be back with us shortly um, on, on in a few weeks on our podcast. So stay tuned for her. Been missing her on the podcast. She's always a, a pleasure to have on, to have all of her knowledge and wisdom on and her beautiful face, of course. So, um, but I am excited to have Glenn Livingston on our podcast today. He is, he has his PhD and he's going to be discussing his book and website, Defeat Your Cravings. So without further ado, Glenn, welcome to our show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Been looking forward to it. Defeat your cravings. I think that's pretty obvious what that means, but go ahead and tell us what your thoughts are about it. Oh, I could talk for an hour and a half if you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let, let me just say that I, I'm not just a doctor that decided to work with overeaters. I'm someone who had a pretty serious problem with overeating myself. I like to say that somewhere around 1982, I lost a war with a chocolate bar and I didn't wake up for maybe 20, 30 years, 20 years, 20 years. Um, and I, I was a, um, I'm a tall kid. I was 6'4". Uh, genetically, I'm just lucky. I was modestly muscular. So I figured out that if I worked out for a couple hours a day, that I could eat anything I wanted to. Yeah. You know, whole pizzas, boxes of donuts and muffins and boxes of chocolate bars, and it didn't matter. And I was actually pretty skinny back then, if you saw pictures. Um, fast forward five or six years, and I'm married, and I'm commuting two hours each way to go to graduate school and see patients. And when I got home, I was helping my wife at the time with, with her business, and I didn't have two minutes a day to work out, much less two hours. But I, I found that the food still had a hold of me. And I'd be sitting and working with a patient, and they'd be talking about something really serious. And I'd be thinking about when can I get the next pizza or when can I get the next um, chocolate bar, you know? And that, that actually bothered me a lot more than the weight because I, I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists and psychologists. And um, yeah, when, when something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it, how it feels, and nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> but, um, it's, 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 kind of a, it's kind of a joke, but it's also, um, you know, it was a way of life for me. It was the most important thing to me. Be, being a good doctor was all I ever really wanted to be. Um, and I was pretty good. I mean, I, I was smart, and I studied hard, and I'm not supposed to say those things about myself, but I, I, I was good anyway. But the point is, I wasn't 100% present, and you got to be 100% present to get someone to... Um, you know, love and trust you enough to think new thoughts and try new things. Right. Um, okay. So being the um, psychologist that I was and from the family that I was, I decided to take the psychological route. I figured there must be something, um, I feel like a hole in my heart. And if I could figure out how to heal that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And I saw the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and I confessed my soul, and I took medication, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I went on a spiritual journey, and it, it, it shaped me as a person in a lot of ways, so I don't regret the journey, but I get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner and a lot fatter every time I find a new journey to go on. Um, simultaneous with all this, my wife at the time was traveling for business. So I didn't see her during the week. I had a lot of time in my hands. We didn't have kids and I worked at home. 
So I had a ridiculous amount of time um, and I started a second career. I started consulting for big industry, um, mostly in the food industry, also a little bit in the farm farm industry. I I was on the wrong side of the war. I I was um, kind of like a hidden persuader helping sell sugar. I I was really, I feel guilty about it now. I I try to make up for it as much as I can. Um, However, because I was doing that, I was privy to the millions of dollars that they were spending to engineer these uh, hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And they're all aimed at hitting the bliss point in the reptilian brain, the reptilian brain, without giving us the nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is, you know, you keep just looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. Well, some fat cat in a white mustache um, in a white suit with a mustache laughs all the way to the back. And the point being that at some point it started to dawn on me that um, maybe it wasn't all an internal psychological problem. There were these external forces that were really targeting very primitive evolutionary buttons in my brain, very powerful um, physical forces in my brain. And at the same time, I remembered a little bit of my neurology from graduate school. This was just before I turned 40, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm almost 60 now. Um, and in graduate school, I remember that I learned the reptilian brain, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for food addiction. It's you know, That's the part of the brain that says just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. It, it's, um, it's a survival drive. It, it's responsible for feast or famine, fight or flight, um, eat, meat, or kill, essentially. And when it sees something in the environment, that's what it thinks. It, it doesn't really know love. It's So if this is the reptilian brain, then there's the mammalian brain on top of that that says, wait a minute, before you eat, meat, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on my family, on my tribe, on the people that I love? And then it's the neocortex on top of that that says, what about my long-term goals? So the point is that this thing here, the thing that's really responsible for the for the drive to overeat, it doesn't know love. But yet I'm spending 20 years trying to love myself then, trying to fix the problem by loving myself more. And so every time, you know, I'd be at a Starbucks and it would say, oh, you worked out hard enough. You might as well have that chocolate bar. It's not going to hurt you. Um, I would think, well, I need more love now. And essentially what I was doing is relinquishing my higher brain and letting the reptilian brain run wild. Um, there was one last thing that really flipped the paradigm for me. I mean, I also saw the advertising industry industry, and I saw how everybody thinks that advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you think that because your resistance is down. Um, but the last thing that really impacted me was I, I engineered this study. Um, I figured I was getting paid a lot to do these studies. I might as well do one for myself. And I I arranged this online survey, essentially, in the days when clicks were cheap. And over the course of about five years, I got 40,000 people to take a survey. I would intercept them when they were searching for some type of stress management solution. So I was looking for people who were feeling stressed. And then I asked them, what types of things can't you stop eating when you're feeling overly stressed? And I found three very interesting things, none of which actually came to the solution, but they forced me to think about a different paradigm. The first one 
was that people who struggled with chocolate, like me, my binges always started with chocolate and then would progress to whole pizzas and anything else that wasn't nailed down. Um, but people who struggled with chocolate, like me, they tended to be a little bit lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. Whereas people who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things, they tended to be stressed at home. And people who struggled with, um, you know, chips and, and pretzels and crunchy, salty things, they tended to be stressed at work. And before I was going to talk about this publicly, I decided I needed to figure it out for myself. So I called my mom, who's also a psychotherapist. And at the time, I guess I was a little more than 40 years old. And I said, Mom, I'm trying to figure this out. You know, yes, I'm not so happy in the marriage, and I am a little lonely or brokenhearted, but what is it in my personal history that causes me to run to chocolate when I'm feeling lonely or brokenhearted or depressed? And my mom gets this awful look on her face. This was on Skype. She gets this awful look on her face and this awful sound in her voice. And she says, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, it's okay. I forgive you. I just trying to figure this out. It was 40 years ago. Just trying to figure out, you know, what could be useful here. She said, well, you know, Glenn, in 1965, when you were one year old, your father, my husband, was the captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was pretty terrified that I was going to be a, a widow. Um, you know, we had we we're working on having your sister, and I thought I'm going to have two toddlers in the house, and I'm going to be a widow and have to take care of this all by myself. At the same time, your grandfather, my father had just gotten out of prison. And I had no idea where he was for two years. I was very depressed about that. Um, I had no idea that he was guilty, and he was. And half the time, I was sitting and staring at the wall, feeling anxious and depressed. So when you came to me looking for love or to play or for some healthy food, I just didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you. So I got a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup, and I kept it in a refrigerator on the floor. And you would go running over to, I said, go get your Bosco. You go running over to the refrigerator or crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd open it up and you'd suck on the, on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma and I could resume staring at the wall. And you would think, Sean, at that, that at that time, if, if it was um, insight and catharsis that really would cure overeating Mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, yeah. and then I'd never have chocolate again, right? But what actually happened was it got worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a good conversation to have, and I felt better about myself. Um, like I didn't hate myself as much, and I learned more about my mom. But it got worse because I discovered there's this voice inside of me, which was a voice of justification. And it would say things like, you know what, Glenn, you are right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until you can get the, get the marriage fixed, or you can get out and find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. At that point, I changed my paradigm. And I'll, I'll pause in a minute so you can ask questions and something. But at that point, I changed my paradigm. And I said, wait a minute. I'm trying to love myself then. This thing doesn't know love. The advertising industry and the big food industry is the perfect storm for overeating and turning off our hungry and full meters. Those are external forces. They have nothing to do with my personal psychology. Um, and then there's this crazy voice in my head that seems to make it okay to indulge. Maybe I have to be more like an alpha dog of my own mind 
rather than a love yourself thin kind of person. Because when an alpha dog is, or an alpha wolf is, is challenged for leadership, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It, it growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? So this is the crux of it. And this started this whole um, movement, which has now grown to more than a million readers and 2,000 clients. And it's now eight books later, I think. Um, I decided to do something crazy just for myself. I was not going to publish this just for myself. I said, what if I call that inner voice that justifies everything my inner pig? What if I have a line that's really clear, just some simple line, like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again, just to prove that I'm in control. And then if I'm in a Starbucks on a Saturday, it says, you worked out hard enough, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Go ahead, one bite's not going to kill you. I'd say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I'm always embarrassed about this part. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I, I'm a sophisticated psychologist by that point, by the way, and I've, you, know, you know what my credentials are. Um, but it didn't miraculously cure me, but what, what it did miraculously do was wake me up at that moment of impulse. It interfered with the automation of stimulus and response. It took away that justification for overeating. And, and it gave me those extra microseconds to make the right decision if I wanted to. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. I adjusted the rule to make them a little easier. I decided that I was going to focus more on following my rules and losing weight per se. I was going to stop panicking about losing weight, which I now know in, in the future that that was actually very important. Um, and slowly but surely, I kept a journal of all the crazy things my pig said. I kept a journal of why it was wrong. So if it says it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, well, the principle of neuroplasticity says that if you have a craving for chocolate and you think, I'll just start again tomorrow, you're, and then you eat the chocolate, you will have reinforced the craving and you will have reinforced the justification. So you'll be more likely to have a deeper craving tomorrow, and tomorrow you'll be more likely to say, just start again tomorrow, which will be the day after. So I kept a journal of those kind of things for about eight years, and, and I got better. I got—I mean, I'm not a skinny guy, but I got—I got thin. My health problems went away, um, and um, you know. And then, as I was getting divorced in 2015, I decided I wanted to do something meaningful. I was not going to do corporate consulting anymore. Long, long story of why I stopped um, clinical practice for a year back then or two. Um, and so I wrote a book. I turned the journal into a book. And, you know, I knew what I was doing in marketing, whatever, but I had no idea it was going to take off the way that it does. And you know, we have over a million readers, and I've got this blog on psychology today with over a million readers, and um, people don't necessarily know me by name when they see me, but they often point to me and go, you're the pig guy. Aren't you the pig guy? <laughs> <laughs> so that that's my story. Well, that's a great story, and thank you for sharing. And it's... It's complex, but it's actually pretty simple once you figure out the the root of the problem or the the um, the start of the problem. And I, you know, your book must kind of go into that. I'm assuming because yeah. without going to a somebody that has a PhD in psychology to get to all the root of that stuff, then it might be kind of difficult. Even though in the end it's simple, it's really not. You know what I'm saying? Well, and also, 
Like, once there's a raging fire, it's more important to be a fireman than a detective, right? Oh, right. You know, like, knowing what started the fire is really less important. It's fascinating. You can learn a lot about yourself, but there are a lot of very practical steps you can take to put out the fire. And this turned out to be the first step because it, um, it clearly defined a line. And I decided that any thought in my head that suggested that I was going to break that line um, required some other analysis or action. So it, what it actually did was it in, installed a pause in the previously automatic loop from stimulus to response. And it so happened that over the first several years, the way that I got better using that pause was to analyze what was wrong with what my pig was saying. And you don't have to call it a pig, by the way. You can call it your food monster or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I called it my pig. Um, there are a lot of other things you can do in that pause. Sometimes just breathing helps. So, sometimes breathing out for longer than you breathe in, which stimulates the part of your nervous system that says it's okay to rest and digest because we have everything we need right now. We don't have to take any urgent actions. Sometimes if you just do that, you breathe that, let's say, for a count of 11 and in for a count of 7, then you'll feel more of a calmness that comes over you and the the urge doesn't seem as urgent at that point. Sometimes it will be that you haven't authentically taken care of your body's needs. Maybe you skipped a meal. or Maybe you didn't get enough nutrition at a meal. So maybe um, a lot of the time for me when I had the chocolate craving, it turned out if I had a kale banana smoothie or a celery banana smoothie, that the chocolate craving would go away. And I found it easier to get myself off chocolate when I would allow myself to have those smoothies as compared to just kind of gritting my teeth and and surfing the urge. Sometimes it's because you're immersed in making too many decisions over the course of the day. There's research that suggests that people have trouble um, making good decisions when they've made too many of them. It's almost like like decision-making ability is... um, like gas in the tank that you burn all day long. And willpower is just the ability to make good decisions. This is why people struggle at nighttime with eating um, when in the morning they have the best of intentions. So sometimes you need a couple of decision-free breaks. You need to put your phone down, put the computer down, walk outside for 10 minutes and breathe, and then come back and life will seem better. Sometimes you haven't gotten enough sleep. Sometimes you've allowed yourself to become too isolated. You know, we're, we're a pack animal. We really have a sense of organismic distress underneath if we're alone for too long. Um, There are a wide variety of things that you can attend to in order to remove that organismic distress besides running for a chocolate bar. There are a lot of things that you could attend to to do that. So um, the book most certainly goes into detail about the origin story that I told you. And it goes into detail about people's objections to considering using rules because they're there's a lot of conventional wisdom, which I think is wrong, that says, you know, food rules are bad. Over-restriction is bad. Using rules to overly restrict your calories and nutrition is bad. You won't be able to sustain that, and that does cause a binge. But, you know, um, it's like a sharp knife in the kitchen. You can use it to chop vegetables, or you could use it for more nefarious purposes. And I say chop vegetables, and it's the same thing with rules. You can use rule defining to create a very reasonable, palatable, sustainable um, approach for for yourself. And um, 
you know, and then you can prove that you're in control and defeat your cravings. You don't have to, you can go through the extinction process and um, you don't have to suffer with these torturous cravings forever. Yeah. One thing I want to, I want to go back to, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you're talking about delaying, delaying eating the chocolate. And when you say, well, not now, but maybe tomorrow, you actually make the urge worse and you justify it. Will you go back to that? Explain that. And then I got a question. Well, well, okay. So what the pig says is eat it now, go back to your rules tomorrow. So forget your silly rules and oh. the chocolate now. Go back to your rules tomorrow. I see. What okay. you can tell the pig at that point is, how about you start tomorrow? How about I eat healthy today? Okay. And if I really want the chocolate tomorrow, I'll write it down on my plan today so that I feel like I took control over it. So how about you start tomorrow, Mr. Pig? That's what you can say. I see. Okay, okay. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe our listeners and viewers caught that. I didn't really catch that. But that does bring up a question for me. So... What are your thoughts about cheat days? I mean, there are, there are some people that they believe in a cheat day. And I mean, their cheat days are crazy cheat days. I mean, boxes of Oreos, you know, they'll eat really clean throughout the whole week. And their cheat day is Sunday and they'll eat rice and chicken all week long. And then Sunday they eat, you know, a box of Oreos. Mm-hmm. I mean, so have you heard of cheat days? Of course. And I have of very, course. So, so what are your thoughts about cheat days? got a very definitive opinion about it, but it's going to require a little bit of background. Is that okay? Okay. Yes, please. Okay. First of all, two out of three people that I work with don't have to give up any particular substance. Two out of three people use the system to moderate the things that they really love. Um, The third person really doesn't do well with sugar, flour, alcohol, that kind of thing. And they, they often need to give up the substance. It differs from person to person, and it differs from substance to substance. So some people can have flour, but they can't have sugar. Some people can have chocolate, but they can't have nuts. Um, so it's it's really an experiment that everybody does on their own to figure out, am I an abstainer or am I a, am I a moderator? Most people are moderators. The way that I suggest that you moderate um, would be like, like shooting at the second rung of your archery target. So if every day your bullseye says, you know, I I never eat bread during the week, right? But on the weekends, I can have up to two slices at a restaurant, um, you know, when I'm with someone else and socializing. I suggest that they do it like that with very specific boundaries rather than just allowing a free-for-all. The reason for that, we call it eating by design. Um, so there's there's nothing you can't eat if you design the boundaries around them, provided that you're a moderator and not, a, not an abstainer. The reason that's important is that my experience, uh, and I have worked with over 2,000 overeaters, by the way. My, my experience is that um, food addiction, the experience of food addiction is really the experience of relinquishing your control over important food decisions from your intellect to your whims, emotions, and impulses. Now, to a certain extent, that can be fun, but I found that when people have had trouble, particularly serious trouble with overeating, if they allow these free-for-alls, often there's no coming back. Often, I mean, I know bodybuilders do that one day. I was going to say, bodybuilders are the ones that commonly do that. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and some of them do it very well, actually. Some of them do it very well. 
Some of them do it very well. But I find even with them, I find it's a more effective solution to say, look, if you want to have 5,000 calories one day, you know, God bless, go do it. But figure out figure out what you're going to have and how much you're going to have beforehand and uh, right. <laughs> give yourself that freedom, but make sure there's a boundary. When you're shooting at an archery target, there's a real benefit of knowing the boundary of what you're shooting at. Because when you miss, and everybody misses sometimes, you know by how far and in what direction so you know how to make the appropriate um, adjustments. When you just like shooting the arrows wherever, yeah. then you know how are you going to fix it? How are you going to make it better? So yeah, you know, I, I recommend think, against cheat days, but I'm in favor of indulgence within boundaries. Yeah. Okay. I mean that's a, that's a great analogy, and um, I, I always thought that the cheat days didn't make sense um, because you know here you're going to eat clean all week and you're going to totally screw it up. On a, on a, and, and I mean, we're talking, you, you, you know, obviously you've talked to these people. We're talking, they eat half gallons of ice cream, boxes oh, of yeah. Oreos, bags of potato chips, all in one day. And to me, that didn't make any sense. And, but, but I will say, I know some of them that are, they do it and they do it very well and they look great. Um, it's still just because you look good doesn't mean you're, you're healthy doing that. But um, it also doesn't mean that you're free from food obsession. I work with a lot of people who are perfectly thin. They're not purging, but they think about food all the time. And they, yeah. when the reason you think about food all the time is because your pig knows that this is a possibility or that's a possibility. When it gets the idea that you're in control and that, you know, the rules that you set, they, they're, you know, they're the gospel, then eventually it stops bothering you in the same way that a kid doesn't throw a temper tantrum in a toy store when they figure out that they only get toys on Saturdays if they did their homework, right? right, we, right. We, don't, we don't crave things that we never indulge in. And we don't, um, we don't obsess about things that don't get reinforced. The brain is very efficient. So it, it's kind of like when you allow these cheat days, especially if you allow, allow them willy-nilly, just kind of when you've had enough, when you, it's like randomly reinforcing a craving, like a, uh, like a slot machine. This is why our ladies get stuck at the slot machine in Las Vegas and other people too. Um, if if they knew that that slot machine only paid off at 10 o'clock on Saturdays, you wouldn't see them there all week long. But because it might pay off the next time, they can't leave the machine. They got to keep putting another right. quarter in, right? Right. And, and, you know, I think, and you being a psychologist, I would love your opinion on this. I, I think, you know, being a pharmacist, I, you know, I obviously know quite a bit about drug addiction. I learned about it in school and, you know, I've had patients, that, family members and friends that, that have had drug addiction. Um, and I think when I, when I hear about, about people with, you know, eating disorders or I hear about people with gambling disorders, they're all really rooted in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what you're talking about when you compared gambling to eating, um, you know, is, you know, drug addiction, food addiction, gambling addiction, sex addiction. It's, it's really all the same, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that, that uh, cingulate gyrus over firing and not enough executive function controlling when you do it. It's all the same thing. I, I like to tell people, people often say that they're eating comfort food because they want to numb out. They feel too emotional. They want to numb out. And I say, well, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, you know, Novocaine numbs you before you go to the dentist, right? And they'll go, yeah. And I said, well, you ever go to the dentist and they say they're out of Novocaine, but they want to inject you with a chocolate bar instead? Um, and I'll, they'll say, ha, 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 that's very funny, Dr. Livingston. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And, but then I'll say, well, that's because there's something else going on when you're running to the chocolate bar or whatever you're calling comfort food. You, you're, you're actually, you're probably going towards something that's an artificially concentrated form of pleasure. Another word for that in our society is a drug. It just happens to be legal. And if you change your paradigm and say, I'm getting high with food, I'm looking to get high with food, it'll become dystonic to you. You won't want to do that as much. Um, and, and, and I suggest that people, um, well, I've already made the recommendation that you, you define the conditions under which you want to have those things and you enjoy them under those conditions rather than trying to escape from your emotions and get high with food instead. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's kind of a, it's like when an alcoholic denies they have alcoholism, right? Um, and, and believe me, I've, I've interviewed people that, you know, weigh 700 pounds on our podcast and you ask them if they had food addiction and they said, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't think possibly, I mean, I'm not a psychologist like you are, but I mean, just thinking about it rationally, I don't think you could literally get to be 700 pounds without being addicted to food. Yeah. An addiction really just means the love of what, what it means is that you've, um, you've sacrificed your ego, that part of you that really pays attention and modulates what you're doing and kind of mitigates between reality and what you're trying to accomplish, that you've sacrificed that and you've given in to the um, very natural. See, I don't think this is a disease process. I think it's a very natural process that actually served us well 100,000 years ago. Um, you've given into the natural process of the brain wanting to automate the acquisition of calories and nutrition. 100,000 years ago, food was probably a lot more scarce. And, you know, if a caveman named Thag, T-H-A-G, um, saw a monkey that led him to a banana tree, if he didn't develop strong cravings the next time he saw a monkey to follow that monkey and hopefully find a banana tree, he could have starved. So people will say that I've got an abnormal or diseased brain and I've got a chronic progressive mysterious disease inside of me. I don't think that's true. I think what we have are healthy appetites that have been corrupted by industry for a profit. Um, and unfortunately, that healthy part of our brain doesn't serve us well in the modern food environment. But that doesn't mean that it's diseased or that you're sick. It does mean that you've allowed it to take over and you've sacrificed your rational control over it. And, and there are things you can do to reverse that and um, take control back. doesn't well, feel like it at the time, but go ahead. Yeah, right. And, and I, know, I know one of the things I tell um, our patients or anybody struggling um, with eating healthy is, you know, one of the ways to take control of that is, you know, don't buy that food industry stuff you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's what we do at our house. Because if I had potato chips or Oreos in my house, Cheetos, whatever, I'd eat them all. Yeah, I, I'd eat the entire thing. I struggled with my weight, you know, over over 13 years ago, and I would eat it all. So we just we we can't buy them because I would eat them. So, but if you don't have it in the house, I'm not going to drive to town to go buy them. It's easier if you make it more difficult. To exactly. Yeah. Definitely. However, some people are not in that situation. Some people live with kids who really insist on having this stuff around. So I'd like to tell the story about. Um, one of the first people I knew who developed internal controls who didn't have the ability to control her environment, um, she worked in a bakery. As a matter of fact, she owned the bakery. And she came to the conclusion that she had to stop eating sugar and flour. And, and she was very successful at it. Nevertheless, 
I said to her, how do you do this? Because all day long, you are not only around sugar and fire, but you have to make it seem sexy. You have to tell people how delicious it is because you've got to sell it because otherwise you don't, you don't make a living. She said, well, that's really easy. I never eat sugar and flour. So when I look at it, I say, that is not my food. That is not my food. So it is possible to create those internal controls. It's harder. It would be better if you could get your kids to agree to keep it out of the house for 90 days. And then you can reintroduce it slowly. So you, you need to, there's something called an extinction curve and an extinction burst. And you kind of have to go through that cycle before your brain stops identifying um, that as a source of calories and nutrition. Wow, that's a that's a great analogy. Um, and, and yeah, like, like you said, um, you got to figure out what's going to work for you. Um, I, I like the idea of creating a barrier, creating a barrier to eating bad food. For me, that's what works. Yeah. So just, you know, create a barrier. And even when you're at a restaurant, and you eat out, just, you know, just stop the urge of over ordering, order something small and don't over order. And, and I almost guarantee you, especially for lunch, by the time you're done with that little meal, you're going to be happy. But if yeah. you supersized it and added the lar- and added the extra large Coke, you would have ate the whole thing. I, that's a really that's a really good story. Uh, it's a really good tip, and I would take it a step further. I, I knew a woman who was a food critic, and she would always lose control when she would go on her food tours. And so one time we had a meeting, and she said, "Well, okay, what I'm going to do is I have to eat out three times a day, but I'm." going to look at the restaurant and figure out what I'm going to order before I go there. And I'm going to write it down in my calendar and I'm not going to walk into the restaurant unless I've written it down. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to order anything that I didn't write down. And she went through the 90 days and she was perfectly fine um, because she made intellectual decisions. She didn't wait until she was at the moment of temptation where the whole restaurant is designed to seduce your inner pig, right? They, the lighting and the smells and the menu and the way the waiter, you know, presents the entrees and the desserts. Um, yeah. So it, it's all about taking intellectual control. Um, and that's the same thing with a grocery shopping list, go to the grocery store with a list of the stuff you need and don't buy anything extra yeah. and stay away from the impulse buys at the checkout counter, the soda and the candy bars, they're right there for a reason. Yep. Oh, I'll just grab that extra. That I mean, that's just, it's great marketing on their part. But also, because when you start realizing, you know that they're doing that, to me, it's kind of like, you know what? I'm not going to give them the pleasure just to spite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you can't take advantage of me like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So as we wind this podcast up, Glenn, tell us a little bit about your website. Well, what I'd like people to do is head on over to defeaturecravings.com, click on that big blue button that you see right there, free book and bonuses. And if you sign up for that on the reader bonus list, you'll get three things. You'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format, all the electronic formats. Um, The traditional formats have, have a charge, but the electronic formats don't. You'll also get a set of food plan starter templates. So this is a diet agnostic program. You can defeat your cravings on any reasonably nutritious diet of your choice. You can't if you're going to try to starve yourself or have 500 calories a day or something like that. But if any reasonable diet of your choice. So we created starter templates that you could use to simulate your thought for, um, you know, 
uh, whole foods versus ketogenic versus point counting versus calorie counting versus macrobiotic, whatever your dietary philosophy is, you'll find something for you. The third thing that you'll get among many are a free set of full-length recorded coaching sessions. The reason that I did that was because I know this sounds a little bit weird and cold in the abstract. You must be thinking, why does Sean have a doctor on with a pig inside of him? What the heck is going on? But I assure you that this is a very compassionate process that takes people from feeling despairing and hopeless and confused about what to do with food to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and um, optimistic within just one session. So I wanted you to hear that. So that's all at um, thefeaturedcravings.com. Click that big blue button and sign up for the reader bonus list. So you'll get all that good stuff. Awesome. So Glenn, uh, the goal of our podcast is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. And with Defeat Your Cravings, you are definitely do that. So thank um, you. Yes. And thank you for being on. Um, we're going to have to follow up with you and have you on again because there is a lot of things we could have went down another another rabbit hole and I talked can talk about, about this all day, man. Whatever yes, you want. Right. And Whatever I love you want. that. I love that. It was so easy to talk to you. So um, I appreciate you being on today. Thank you for being on Health Solutions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Thursday where Janet and I will ask, will answer questions that we had from our Instagram reel about what drugs not to take. So 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., our midweek podcast Thursday. Tune in. Thank you for listening.